if we can hold our partner in mind as someone who's a decent person who loves us, but is also human and fallible, that is the biggest predictor of long-term success. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Jennifer Petra-Leary, author of the book, Couples Who Work. Mamas, the world has changed dramatically over the last 50 years, and the standard of one partner being home with the kids while the other works has become less and less common. Today, over two-thirds of married couples are dual-career couples. Both parents work outside the home. But the world is still not designed to handle that reality. From 3 p.m. school pickups to random half days and days off of school, navigating whose career takes priority and how to handle the logistics is difficult, especially when you add in people making more career transitions than ever before. Creating lasting, healthy relationships while allowing your career to thrive is possible, and it's Jennifer's specialty. She's an associate professor of organizational behavior at Inseed Business School and the author of Couples That Work, a book based on her research of over 100 dual career couples and what helped them thrive. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from the episode, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Jen to download your free copy of our Family Money Values Worksheet and to view the complete show notes of the episode. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? I'm good. It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you as well. I'm really excited to talk about your book today, Couples That Work. And I think that there's a lot out there on how couples where both spouses work can manage the whole situation, but largely it's around logistics. Can you tell us how you talk about it differently? Yeah. So when I approached the research that the book's based on, I'd read all this stuff like how to divide the laundry and things like that. But that's not what I was struggling with. And it was not what any couple I knew was struggling with. It was really about how do we prioritize our careers? How do we make decisions about geographic moves? How do we thought out whose career takes priority? How do we both go after our dreams? And these are much more psychological issues. Who has the power? Who carries the weight? All these things. And what I found as I got into the research was, of course, it was these things were driving the practicalities. You know, when we're writing about who bought the milk, it's never about the milk, more about these underlying issues. So it's really interesting in trying to tackle these as a way to understand what's really going on in a couple. And if we can fix that, then it really doesn't matter who buys the milk. It's funny. So we talk mostly about money and personal finance here. And we talk about that all the time of like, the budgeting is not the complicated part. It's whatever your emotional relationship is with money and the underlying. So what advice do you have for couples that are managing this? And let's start, I want to go through, you had some specific transitions in the book. But first, we've got a lot of moms at home right now that are trying to work and watch their kids and their husbands are trying to work. How can we manage this situation? Yeah, so it's really important we don't start with the practicalities. Of course, we need to get the daily routine and all those things, but we've got to get back to first principles. And the real first principle is what are priorities right now? And they're likely to have changed a lot, right? Both our work priorities, but also our home priorities. And I've seen all these Facebook posts with everyone with these beautiful routines trying to keep their kid on the same routine as before. The reality is our children don't need that, right? Their needs have changed hugely, all but the smallest infants. You know, they're not seeing their regular friends, their child carers, their teachers, their sports coaches. You know, their world's been turned upside down. 
So we've got to get back to first principles and think, what does everyone need in our household right now, practically and emotionally? How can we structure our lives around those needs as opposed to trying to keep things going based on an old reality, right? Our worlds have changed. We've got to adapt to the new normal. Absolutely. So Jennifer, I don't know if you saw, there was an article in the Atlantic, I believe last week about how the coronavirus will be the death of feminism and how we're seeing this like push back to traditional gender roles with everyone home of the woman's career taking second priority. How can we push back on those traditional values and make sure that we're choosing a balance that works best for our family? Yeah. So I think I have two responses to that. I would say, Yes, that's happening in some couples, but not all couples. Like, let's not totally beat the guys up, right? (laughs) Not happening in all couples. No, no. What is happening in those couples who aren't reverting to those gender norms? Mm -hmm. And what is happening in those couples is they're investing in deliberate conversations around what do we need and how are we going to make this work? And when couples do that, Of course, in the situation we're in now, we're all going to have to give a bit, right? There's no perfection. It's all about good enough right now. But there's no need for one or other of us to take the huge amount of the load. In every single couple, even couples where maybe before one of us had a part-time job, we should still be able to have some time for ourselves, have some time for work, and take the load in the family. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we should all be 50-50. That may not work for your family. It might not work for mine. It may not work every day. But if we're investing those conversations and really understand what we need and how we can support each other, it's very possible. And there are a lot of couples doing it. Absolutely. What was the conversation you and your husband had when you guys transitioned to working from home? I mean, I think the first conversation we had was around our anxiety, right? What are we worried? And I think like many couples, we share concerns, right? We have elderly relatives. For us, my mother-in-law is in Italy, which, as everyone knows, is the epicenter of the crisis right now. Very, very concerning. So more bigger concerns about those. Then we had concerns about, you know, our job stability. What's going to happen? Will we get pay cuts? How will we manage financially? day-to-day concerns. How are we going to get all this done? (laughs) And homeschool our kids. And our kids are a little bit older now, so it's not about just getting them to read. This is about complex algebra and (laughs) Greek mythology we're talking. So, you know, there was also a question around, right, can you remember how to calculate the circumference of a circle? (laughs) Yep. So really from the big concerns to the small concerns. And that helped us in two ways. One is it grounded us because I think like, I'm like most people, you know, if I don't talk about my concerns, they were in the background and I can spin these kind of negative fantasies, right? Oh my goodness, my mother-in-law is going to get sick and we can't get to Sicily and how do we figure this out? And simply talking these things through, I think pulls the burden off and also showed us where do we need to focus our attention? What are the things we can control And what are the things we just need to talk through and see if we can manage? Absolutely. I think the expectation that this is just not going to be perfect, right? (laughs) This is not a situation where everything's going to be exactly the way we want it because we're in chaos and we're in crisis. Absolutely. So I like starting with that anxiety conversation. But let's bring it back to normal day-to-day life, right? So when these relationships start and we and our spouse both have jobs, it doesn't usually start contentious, right? So where do these issues start to come up? The issues start to come up at the point where we have to make our first big decision together. And that tends one of two things. Either one of us gets a great career opportunity, which involves a geographic move or some real major upset in our lives. And we have to think about, okay, do I follow? You know, how do we make that work? 
or the first child arrives, right? And for all those of you who are parents, we know that's the end of parallel living. We need to make some hard choices around how do we structure our lives? Whose career takes priority, if anyone's? How do we make this all work? And what I talk about in the book is the first transition. And in many ways, it's caused by something good, right? It's lovely when a new baby's born. It's great to have an amazing career opportunity, but it also means we need to negotiate. And I tend to think of this as the moment when we become a couple. Before that, we were just two people in love leading parallel lives. And suddenly, we're going to have to make a hard choice that makes us think about how do we really combine our lives in a way that we can be healthily interdependent. Okay. So when we hit this trigger in this first transition, is this something that happens at a moment in time that lasts a week or two and we figure it out and we move on? Or is this an extended transition? It's an extended transition. And one mistake people make is to try and speed it up. And so let's take either one of those, the baby arrives or the career opportunity. People think, okay, we're going to sit down tonight. We're going to figure it out. We'll get our Excel spreadsheet out and we'll be fine tomorrow. No. I'm totally guilty of doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Just as a heads up. (laughs) But many of these life transitions, we need to feel our way into a solution because Mm -hmm. like any other mother, you know, I thought I knew the kind of mother I was going to be. And then suddenly the baby arrives and all bets are off. (laughs) You just do not know. Likewise, with a big career transition, something looks attractive. It makes sense. But once you get into it, the reality unfolds in a different way. And it's really important that we are flexible and have an ongoing conversation rather than kind of set something in stone, sign in blood, carry on, because that's when the resentments build. Absolutely. So when we think about sitting down with that Excel spreadsheet and trying to speed it up, right? You talked about over-relying on economic criteria. So what does that look like? And just to give some frame of reference, we hear sometimes from women in our community, I'm just going to quit my job because childcare is expensive and it doesn't make sense for me to keep working. And this is something that comes up a lot. So is that an example of this? Yeah, that's a classic example because what we're doing then is two things. We're over-relying on economic decision criteria in the short term. And the reality is, and there are a lot of research on this specific issue, if you give up your job, you will never go back and make the same amount of money. So even if for 10 years, all your wage almost goes on childcare, you're still much better financially off in the long term. Now, I'm not saying that giving up your job is the wrong decision for everyone. For some people, they really want to spend time at home with their kids. That's great. But doing so just based on finances is foolish because there's many, many studies which show that's not the best financial decision. Okay. Did you go through that at all when you had your child? Yeah. So we went for the factory farming approach. So we had two in 16 months. We we were (laughs) And um, And it was at a time when I was retraining. So I was in the middle of my PhD. So I was earning almost nothing. And economically, it made no sense at all for us to send our kids to childcare. It was actually my husband who was like, there's no way I am letting you giving up on your career because this isn't about now. This is about in three years time, in five years time, in 10 years time. And as he likes to remind me, he was right. (laughs) (laughs) He always has that. And what about when we talk about these conversations, right? Your husband was very supportive and was pushing you to stay. What about when there's the flip, right? Where you're working, you're just making childcare and your spouse or your extended family is encouraging you to quit because of short-term things. How do you facilitate that discussion to let them know why you want to keep working? 
So I think that it's different if it's your spouse versus your family. So let me do the spouse first because the family is a little bit easier to deal with. I think with your spouse, it's really about having these conversations around why do we work? Nobody works for money alone, right? And you can see that. And why are you in this job and not a different job? Most of us could probably get a different line of work, which may be a little bit better paid, but we don't because we like what our job offers. We love the community. We like other things. So it's really important we get away from this thinking of job equals money and more to job equals money and community and developmental opportunities and everything else. And what I find is that the vast majority of couples, partners are really supportive of each other. The issue is they don't often understand what it is they need to support. Mm. And so when, especially when we have very small children, I knew this two under twos, it's madness for anyone <laughs> two under twos. Um, it gets better when they grow up though. It's madness. And it can be very easy to focus real short-term thinking, i.e. the next, how are we going to get through the next hour? It's very important we sit down with our spouse and say, look, I know this is really stressful for us, but I'm not, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about what's going to happen long-term. It's about how we set up for the future. And I also think this is often an argument that appeals to men, also to women, but this is about financial hedging. The reality is our job market now is very insecure. It's very unstable, particularly at the moment, there's huge numbers of layoffs. And even if most of your wage goes on to the childcare, you're providing a backup, right? I also don't like the equation that it's the woman's wage that pays for the childcare, right? No, it's not the pays for the childcare, but regardless... Whoever it is, you're providing that stable backup because you just never know if you might be impacted. So it's not just about you as a whole. It's also about the two of you providing for the family. And this is where that classic, well, I earn a lot more than you, so your wage is not that important. Well, maybe not today, but if you get laid off next week, my wage is going to save us. Yeah. And I think those kind of partly hard-nosed financial conversations and also partly values conversations. This is not just about money. This is other things. Is a way to really open that up with our, our partners. And I find that in that situation, most partners can find a solution that works best for them. In terms of our wider family, usually our parents or our parents-in-law. Yep. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Try having a Sicilian mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> you haven't seen nothing. She's lovely. She's lovely. She's a great cook. <laughs> that's hedging also <laughs> no she's actually very supportive of my career she is about what is the boundary between my family and the wider family and I appreciate your support and I appreciate your advice but this is not your decision and I think it's very important psychologically for us that we draw those boundaries between our families and this isn't like I don't appreciate you it's this is where the boundary of my family ends and this is where the extended family begins. And when it comes to decision making that has long term influences for you as a couple, your parents and parents in law have no place in that. Absolutely. So this transition, Jennifer, this is a really hard one, right? Because up until this point, our relationship has probably been fairly smooth. And now we're like asking those questions of did I choose the right person? Can we make this work? The whole thing. So what tools can we talk about that will help guide us through? And the first one, actually, you mentioned in the book, couple contracting, which I really like getting things down in black and white. So can you explain what that looks like? Yeah. So it's really this idea that all couples have a deal, right? They have a psychological contract. 
Now, you may be listening thinking, what? We never made a deal. You may not have spoken about your deal, but I guarantee you have a deal, right? Have a deal. Who carries the weight? Who does the labor in this area? How do we treat each other? How do we support each other? The issue for most couples is, is it's unspoken. And we developed that in the early days in the honeymoon period, and the deal's always great. But at this point, it's really important we revisit the deal. And I think it's great to write things down. And I think writing things down is not just about, well, remember, we wrote this, and so you better talk to it. It's also really an expression of what I found a common feature of really successful couples was that they wrote their story together. They deliberately thought, what life do we want and how are we going to get it? And I think the act of physically writing is just a demonstration of that. And the contract that I talk about in the book or the deal is really about three things. The first is, what are our values? What are our priorities? What matters most to us? What do we really want from life? Now, this is not the five-year plan. This is, what kind of couple do we want to become? You know, do we want to be the adventure couple? Do we want to be the embedded in our community couple? Do we want to be in the family network couple? What kind of parents do we want to be? What is important to me professionally? What's important to me personally? This is really important because if we understand this, These are the things that are going to be the yardsticks by which we measure our lives. And so they should be the decision criteria. It's very easy, particularly in our 20s and 30s, when our careers are accelerating, to see this shiny opportunity and take it, thinking it looks good, but actually it doesn't really align with what we really want. And I see that time and time again in my research. So this idea of what really matters to us is forms the basis of our decision-making criteria and what we want out of life. The second thing are some boundaries, right? What are the lines we're not going to cross as a couple? Now, this can be really counterintuitive for those of us who are brought up in the West because we tend to be brought up thinking more choice, the better. As you well know from all the research, that's not what the research shows at all. What the research shows is the more choice we have, the harder it is to decide and the more likely we are to regret our decisions. So by having boundaries, and they might be geographic, like we're not going to leave the East Coast of the US, for example, or we're not going to leave a certain town, they might find boundaries, neither of us is going to take a job with X amount of travel or so many hours. What that does is it defines the playing field we're going to play on. And if we get an opportunity outside of that playing field, it's just a no. Now, psychologically, these boundaries are really helpful because they reduce our uncertainty and anxiety, which is a big cause of stress in couples. Practically, they're really helpful for us because we can very quickly make decisions. Is it on our playing field or is it out of our playing field? And so it eases that decision-making process for couples. And so these are the main two elements of the contract, the deal. You know, what matters most? What is the playing field we're playing on? And then, obviously, when opportunities come up, we discuss them. And the third area, and something we touched on a little bit, like what did John Pierre and I do immediately when the crisis happened, is is to talk about our concerns. And I think this is a really healthy practice in couples because very often our concerns can be managed and sometimes they are fantasy concerns. So we may get really worried that our partner wants something in the future or is expecting something that's not even on their mind. And so when we bring these things up, we can clear the air and think about, okay, what's real and what is imagined? That makes sense. So when we talk about this contracting, how do we tie it into kind of career mapping? And I'm thinking about maybe you want to stay in one geographic area. You want to raise your kids, you know, within an hour of where your parents live, for example. But you work a corporate traditional job that requires to move up the ladder 
you're going to have to move a couple of times, right? You're going to have to take some different office positions. So how do we tie that together and make sure that we're not setting boundaries that are going to drive resentment when those opportunities come up that we have to say no to? It's a great question. And I think what you need to think of is boundaries within certain periods of time. So yes, we want to live in this area, but is that we always want to live in this area or is that the long-term goal and we can move around within a certain time window? So for example, many people with, with kids say, you know, I'm fine for them in elementary school. If we move around a little bit, that's okay. But once they hit middle school, we need to be in that place we've decided or in that region. And that's where we're going to stay for that whole period through to them, you know, getting to college. So I think it's about having some negotiated flexibility in there. Now, that does not mean it's a moving goalpost. (laughs) There's some kind of reality in there. There may be periods where those boundaries are more flexible. And then what are those periods? Can we negotiate those up front? And this those of us who are parents is often linked to the ages of our children, isn't it? You know, we we know yeah. those early years, they're a bit more malleable. We can take them anywhere, that's fine. But, you know, once they hit eight or nine and they start with those friends networks, then we really do kind of want them to be in that stable place and and with the cousins and everyone else and, and growing up in the tribe. Absolutely. So, Jennifer, there are people listening to this that are currently going through this transition. And maybe they have two under two Maybe, you know, the crisis is causing them to have to make some big decisions, unclear exactly what's going on, but they're in this transition. And the last thing they feel like they have emotional energy for is having these conversations. So can you tell us if we don't have these conversations, what happens? What happens to our relationship longer term? Yeah. So the quick answer is it's going to fail. (laughs) The longer answer is, you know, people say to me, you know, oh, I mean, the last thing I want to do is invest in my relationship. You know, if if I have to work on my relationship, there's something wrong with it. And what I would say is, no, if you are not working on your relationship, then there will be something wrong with it. I also think we need to get away from this idea that to have these conversations takes, I don't know, a weekend away at a log cabin and a roaring fire and no interruption. I've nothing wrong with log cabins. That would be amazing. But... It doesn't. What it requires is 15, 20 minutes when the kids are in bed with a cup of tea or a cup of beer or whatever on the sofa, just having some undivided attention time. Not every night, every couple of weeks, checking in, starting these conversations. This is not a huge investment in time. And I would say, you know, even in the days where you have five nightly get ups and, you know, to breastfeed or whatever, and you have two under twos. If you can't afford 15 minutes a week, that's really saying something about your relationship. Yeah, we need to prioritize our partners. Yeah. Absolutely. So Jen, we set these boundaries. We have the conversations. We make time for the 15 minutes. And then we just set, like then we just keep following these rules in perpetuity and nothing comes up again. What's the next transition? Yeah. So I think there's two things. One is this is really about the habit of developing an ongoing conversation. So it's not 15 minutes one. I think it's about checking in not every night that would become a bit tiresome but certainly you know every few months and definitely when a big transition comes up we should be revisiting these conversations absolutely and the point that tends to be tricky for couples comes well obviously depending when you have children a little bit later at the mid-career point which tends to be somewhere in our 40s not necessarily and this is a point where if you think back to your 20s and and those people in their 30s now, it's a time of acceleration and building, right? We're building our career, we're building a relationship, many of us are building a family as well. 
And then what happens a little bit later is we take a step back and think, you know, is this really what I want? And it's a question that many of us face at that mid-career point. We take a step back and we look at our life and think, if things are going well, hopefully, is this really where I want to be? Is this the career I want? Is this the family I want? Is this the situation I want us to be in? And this is a very natural transition point. And it's a very important one for our development as individuals. And it's about making a path that's truly ours. But it's pretty stressful when there's two of you in it together. And it's pretty stressful even if there's just one of you in. Because by this stage, our lives are very intertwined. And so any choice we make has big consequences for each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this transition in many ways is a bit more of an existential transition, right? What do I really want from my life and how can we get this together? And it's a time in our lives when, you know, for the first time we start to realize, okay, my time here is finite. And it's not that we're, you know, staring death in the face, but I think there's a sense that I don't have all the time in the world left in my career. And if I want to do something or make a transition, the time is now, you know, there's a sense of urgency around picking the right path. And you've interviewed over 100 couples in your research. Can you tell me any stories about what does this transition look like? Like, how has this worked for different couples? Yeah. So it almost always begins with questions around a career. So one partner will wake up and be like, yeah, I'm just not that happy in my job. Maybe I should make a shift. So one couple I remember in particular He'd been set up in the primary career position and she'd still had a career, but a little bit more secondary and spent more time with the children. And he began to just feel really restless. He was a middle manager. He wasn't really enjoying his job. And he started with all these questions. But at the same time, he's the primary breadwinner. He felt a lot of responsibility and he felt trapped. And this feeling of trappedness is very, very common at this career stage. This feeling of like, oh goodness, we've got this deal. And if I do anything that rocks the boat, that impacts everyone in the family. And so I'm I'm trapped in this position. And of course, what happens when we feel trapped is we often start to, you know, our emotions go haywire, right? So he, he actually got quite depressed and he was very upset about it. He withdrew. Obviously, their relationship got into trouble because, you know, he's withdrawing. He's not as active in the relationship. At the same time, she's doing the same questioning, right? She's Her career's been on a back burner for a number of years while the children, but now the kids are approaching middle school. She's turned into the taxi as opposed to the, <laughs> you know, as opposed to the total hands-on all the time. And she's feeling like taking a step up in her career. But at the same time, she's also feeling trapped, right? I'm in the position where I'm still the primary caregiver. How's this going to work? And of course, like many couples, their predicaments are interlinked, right? Neither can shift without the other shifting. Also, like many couples, the start of their transition is not very happy place. They're both feeling trapped. They're both feeling depressed. Their relationship starts to go on the rocks. And it's only once they realize the interconnectedness of where they are that they start to see, okay, there's a way out of this if we both change together, right? If we both make changes together. And so then they entered a long period of, okay, well, what do we want? You know, experimentation, exploration, figuring it out and slowly making that shift. And I think this is what's classic about this transition is for many couples, it takes a while, right? It probably takes a period of a couple of years from those initial feelings of, oh goodness, I'm in this situation which is working, but it's not working to, 
having reoriented and get back into a new rhythm that suits you both. Absolutely. So my question as I listened to this and as I read this part of the book was, what happens when you hit these points at a different time than your spouse, right? Some people are going to feel this sooner and the other spouse doesn't want to make a change. So how do we navigate shifting together? Yeah. So in some ways it's easier because psychologically one of you is a little bit wobbly, but the other one's not. But practically it can be more difficult because the person who shifts first has then set in stone a path that the other person must now adapt to, the person who's hitting this transition second. And so it's very important if your listeners are in that situation now where one or other of them are questioning things but the other isn't, that they start thinking about this in terms of, okay, let's not make any decisions that's going to close too many doors for the other person. Um, So let's not put in place something that, you know, like, okay, I don't know, let's move to China tomorrow. (laughs) Let's not make a decision that is going to block off too many questions for the other person. And I think even if you're not psychologically at this transition point yet, most of us probably have an inkling that, you know, I'm really happy where I am now, but I know that in a few years time, I'll probably want to dot, dot, dot. I think many people I speak to can say roughly what that dot, dot, dot is. And they can also say, I don't want that now and I'm very happy, but I do know in a few years time, I will probably be gravitating towards that. So I think many people, even if they don't want it now, have a sense of what that midpoint transition might look like. Okay. And I'm curious, where do you feel like you and your spouse are on this journey, right? Have you hit this second trend? Do you know what your dot, dot, dot is? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways for me, it was writing the book and changing my focus from kind of a very sort of theoretical academic to a more public intellectual and outreach and things like that. So, you know, that was my transition. And I think if you'd have asked me five years ago, I would have known that, but I wasn't ready to do it. Understood. I I wasn't particularly wanting to do it. And then, you know, hit the point where the kids are a bit older, you know, I'm a bit older, (laughs) (laughs) with my job. And then it starts to feel like the right time to do that. Yeah. And how did that shift for you impact your husband's career? Or did it? Yeah, it did. Because I think like many people, I mean, we've always both placed a big emphasis on our career. And so I would say we were sort of double primary, that we both prioritize our careers. But I have always done more at home. And I've wanted to, that's not, you know, my husband is very hands-on dad. He's on the trampoline with the kids as we speak, actually. (laughs) He's a very hands-on dad. But, you know, I've always been the one who's come home early, who's, you know, done the lion's share because I wanted to. So there's been a shift really in the balance of that. And also our children are getting older, so there's a natural shift anyway. But there's been a shift in the balance of that and also a shift for the children, quite frankly, because it's like, no, you don't need to come to mummy every single time. (laughs) You can also go to papa. So I think it's a shift in the whole system, not just in the couple. Absolutely. And Jen, how does this transition look different, this midlife crisis, for lack of a better term, look if you didn't deal well with transition one? Yeah. So this is when the unfinished business can come back to bite. And it often comes back in the form of resentments. You know, well, I sacrifice for you, so now you better sacrifice for me. And we can get into this tit-for-tat mode, right, this trade-off mode. Now, of course, all relationships need trade-off, but if that's the only basis of your decision-making, it's not going to get you very far as a couple. And this is definitely where it shows up 
in couples is at this stage. And so what I would say, if you're somewhere between transition one and transition two, you may want to revisit those agreements now before you hit transition two, because then you're facing with sort of double trouble. And in this situation, you had one example in your book of someone who kind of jumped. They thought life needed to be different, and they just had to veer right really quickly. What happens when you do that and then decide it's the wrong thing, right? Because I could see couples not being willing to ask their spouse, okay, I need to make another change. I need to make a second change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, we're all human. We all make mistakes. And these things happen. I think we can lessen our chance of making the mistakes by not trying to jump too quickly and really considering options. But the reality is this happens to even the best of us. So I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that and not either feel guilty or blame your partner. You know, this is just the natural course of life. And then I think, you know, if that happens, there's a way in which you've just got to deal with it in your couple, right? And I think then it's, does it become a pattern or is it a one-off? I think if it's a one-off, let's forgive, let's move on, let's deal with it. I think the difficulty is if it becomes a pattern. You know, we can one mistake, maybe two, but if we start flipping between transitions, you know, oh, I want to do this, that didn't work out, now I want to do that, that becomes a real burden for a working couple. I think at that point, it's a case of, you know, was it a mistake, genuine mistake, or is it developing into a pattern? And they're very different situations. Absolutely. And we talked earlier in transition one about kind of drawing this line around, you know, what is the decision for my immediate family and where is my extended family involved? And I think about in the second transition, what is the role of conversations with your kids at this stage, right? If you and your spouse decide you're going to make a major life change and your kids are middle school, high school age, did you see any couples that involved their kids to make sure that the family dynamic stayed stable? Yeah. And I think the question is, what does involved mean? Right. (laughs) I think it's not fair on children or parents, even up to high schoolers, to give them decision rights. They're not old enough to deal with that responsibility. It's hard for them to think through the consequences. We're the parents, right? That's our role. That is not their role. That said, it's very healthy to talk through the pros and cons, the decision criteria, et cetera, with our children. And in a way, it's role modeling, right? It's showing them we're making informed decisions. We're thinking this through. Yes, mommy and daddy are going to take the decision, but we're going to let you know our thought process and how we're thinking about it. And I think that's very healthy. I think it's not healthy to present a fait accompli. This is what we're going to do, by the way. You drop the bomb on them. But I don't think it's healthy to give them a decision-making power. Right. But you do have to hear their concerns yeah. and let them know what's going on in the decision. That's that's great guidance. So we get through this second shift. We kind of have careers we feel like either have more purpose or more of what we want to do and achieve. And once again, there's a third thing coming up, right? This is not just our last major lifestyle change. What's that third final transition? Yeah. Final makes it seem like you have no more issues after that, but I assume that's not the case. Just That's the next book. Yeah. <laughs> As my parents say, you should put grandparents that work. <laughs> <laughs> the third transition comes at a time when our social roles are changing. So our children are leaving home. We're no longer the hands-on parents. Likewise, our 
career has plateaued, which it always does, even if you reach a very senior point. And it's a time when we really take a step back and think, okay, who do I want to be for this next stage of my life? And for most of us, we're not going to be able to retire at 50, right? The reality is we're going to be working into into our late 60s, early 70s. So we've still got a pretty good run of our career left, but it's a time when our horizons tend to open. So probably you and I, if we can get through the day holding in mind our work, our kids and our and our partners, it's a good day. Right? Absolutely. It's a good day. We collapse into bed feeling pretty smug and we wake up the next day and try and repeat that. You know, it would be lovely if we had time to think about and bandwidth to think about our community, you know, giving back, legacy, mentoring people. But the reality is we are just not there right now. When we get to the third transition, we are there. And so what happens is we can expand those horizons and think a little bit more broadly in terms of who do I want to be? How do I want to give back? How do I want to shift who I am and who we are together? So it's an exciting time. And it's also a time of loss, right? I'm no longer the hands-on mum who's needed all the time. I'm no longer the bright young thing in the organization. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, the third transition. And what are some of those traps as we do expand our horizons, some things that can make this more difficult? The real trap here is when we're in different spaces. And partly this comes from unfinished business from the first and second transitions. And part of it just comes a little bit from like that hand that life has dealt us and the kind of people we are. I think that the biggest trap is not thinking past what we've been doing up till now. Because the reality is the generation that's hitting this transition now are the first generation that's hitting this transition at all, right? Because before, well, there weren't many working couples and two things were happening. One is that by the time you hit this age, you were five years away from retirement and the gold watch and that was it. So you were just hanging on for your time in the same organization. The second thing is we had children earlier. So it's likely that we were on the cusp of becoming grandparents and getting grandparent duties. So we're the first generation that's enjoying this extended period where we're not looking after children, but nor are we looking after grandchildren. So we have this freedom. And likewise, careers have shifted. So we're not probably in one organization that we're going to stay with through to retirement now. There's all sorts of options, you know, entrepreneurship, the gig economy, independent working, portfolio careers, you know, switching between organizations the previous generations didn't enjoy. But of course, we have no role models because we're the first ones there. And so we're kind of making it up as we go along. So one of the biggest traps is just not thinking broad enough, just keeping narrow and missing out on opportunities. Absolutely. And so I feel like this whole book was so insightful for me because just seeing where these issues can come from, right? That like, you're not the only couple going through these difficult transitions, that this isn't necessarily a relationship mismatch. It's, it's just life. Our world changes yeah. you know, over time and we have to shift. But I know we're going to get the question. We didn't touch on it really in the first transition, but there are logistical things here, right? There's like, okay, we can make a decision. We can make a career plan together, but the laundry still needs to get done. <laughs> Someone still needs to pick up the kids up from school. Yeah. So what advice do you have on navigating that, right? How do we split those duties once we have this foundation of what we want our career priorities to look like? Yeah. And I think the answer is in your question. It's splitting it based on that foundation. 
So the logic for the division of labor has got to be based in the foundation of your priorities. And this is where sometimes this general advice, like, oh, to be a a couple that works, you need to be 50-50. No, not if that (laughs) can work for you, right? It may be great for some couples, but not necessarily. The way you divide the tasks, both in what kind of proportion you each take, but also which tasks you take needs to be based in the logic of what you're trying to go for in life, what's important to you and what your priorities are. And that is the key thing. If you can see that connection, two things happen. One is we're much more likely to accept the division of labor and not be resentful of it. And second, we're less likely to see it as a sacrifice and more likely to see it as something that contributes to the whole, right? If I understand that this is my fair share, whatever share that happens to be, because these are my priorities and these are my partner's priorities, we're kind of in it together and the tasks become, okay, this is part of getting what we want as opposed to, oh my God, I've got all the laundry. This is not what I want. So I think it's about having a logic for the practicalities. And what about outsourcing? And I think this is an instance, at least in the States, where there's a lot of bias and judgment around whether it's getting extra help with childcare or paying someone to do your laundry, right? That we're supposed to do it all. <laughs> so how can we decide whether it makes sense for us to outsource something? So there's actually a lot of research on this. <laughs> and the research shows <laughs> that actually up to quite a high proportion of money, it's always worth outsourcing the tasks we least like, or we just need, you know, some practical help with like the childcare. So it makes us happier, it makes us less stressed, which in turn makes us better parents and better partners. And so what I always advise to people is, you know, of course, childcare is slightly different. Even if you are a full-time stay-at-home parent, you will have some childcare arrangements, whether it's simply for date nights or, you know, when your children start school, every single couple in the world has some kind of childcare in place. Yeah. So, so putting childcare aside for a moment and coming to those practical tasks, what I recommend is quite simply just list everything. Think about what are your most hated tasks and they're the ones you should be outsourcing. Now, for you, that may be ironing. For me, it may be mowing the lawn. It doesn't matter what it is, but that should be the logic of it. And your logic will naturally be very different from my logic. But the research is very, very clear on here on this point outsourcing is really important for all couples whether both partners work or not because the time it buys us we invest in our children we invest in our relationship and that makes everyone happier that makes a lot of sense and I like this like making a list of what you least like to do and I'm thinking that there's places and this is places my husband and I where you know I would not want to mow the lawn Like I would outsource that, but he likes to mow the lawn. So we can trade that off as well. We don't have to outsource everything we hate. We can find combinations with our spouses that work as well. Exactly. And what often happens in partners is the things that are important to one of you just aren't important to the other. And so often the tasks we actually love that don't feel like housework, our partners are like, yeah, I'm very happy for you to do all of that. So um, yeah. That's awesome. So Jennifer, you have interviewed a ton of different couples in your research, and I'm curious as we wrap up here, what advice do you have for couples to create longevity and healthy relationships? I mean, just two things. I mean, one is investing in the habit of having these deliberate conversations. And the second sounds very straightforward. (laughs) 
But when we look over time, the biggest predictor of longevity of happy relationships is kindness. And I'm not just talking about doing kind things like, you know, buying a little gift or letting your partner have a lie-in. What I'm really talking about is, do you think kindly of your partner? So when they forget the takeout or don't put the laundry on, what is your attribution? Do you think, oh my God, they're so lazy. I can't believe they did that. They just don't respect me. Or do you think, goodness, they must have had a really hard day to forget that thing you was really important to me. And what we find over the long term is if we can hold our partner in mind as someone who's a decent person who loves us, but is also human and fallible, that is the biggest predictor of long-term success. This has been fantastic, Jennifer. But before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan, but <laughs> what house are you in, Jennifer? Oh, I'd, I'd probably be Ravenclaw. Same. Absolutely. <laughs> so the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where the magical hat asks a question to reveal something about you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What do you wish someone told you about motherhood before you had kids? That everything is a phase. I need to hear that right now with a four-year-old and a two-year-old boy that are destroying my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Causing absolute chaos. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Jennifer, where can people follow up with you, find your book, and see more of your work? Yeah. So the best place to follow up is on my website, which I guess you'll put on the show notes. Absolutely. Because it's hard to spell. And then my book is available on sort of all big retailers, Amazon, all the rest, and couples that work. Wow, mamas. I loved learning from Jennifer today and hearing her description of the three major transitions that all dual career couples go through. I think they are valuable for all couples, not just working couples, as the first transition is often when one parent chooses to stay home. And the second transition, where we ask, is this a life I want to lead, is often when the spouse at home may start to question if they want to re-enter the workforce, if they want something different. Personally, just knowing what these transitions are make me more confident that Jeremiah and I will be able to navigate them. It reduces that, is it like this for everybody question that we all have. Now, as always, I've rounded up my top three takeaways from today's episode to help you focus in on Jennifer's main points. Every relationship is different, but keeping these tips front of mind can help you thrive in both your relationship and at work. First, conversation between you and your spouse is paramount. We all have visions about what our careers, relationships, and family will look like, but we don't always share them with our spouses. And worse, we often assume our partners want what we do out of life and work, and that might not be the case. Jen shared that the most happy, fulfilled couples are the ones who learn to make communication a regular habit, sharing what they wanted, what boundaries were important to them, and found ways to work together. Succeeding as a dual career couple isn't about the decisions you make once and stick to forever. It's about the ongoing narratives that continue through the twists and turns of life. It's knowing where our spouses need to be supported and what they really want. If you're already through the first or even the second transition, resentment may be showing its face in your relationship. Start talking. Be honest. Create an interdependent relationship where you can create the work and family structure that truly works best for both of you. Second, don't let yourself get too caught up in the near-term logistics. When something isn't working and we're overwhelmed, we don't want to dive into the nitty-gritty. We just want to fix it. We just want a way out. It's part of the reason why so many divorces happen in the first few years after a couple has had kids. Their worlds have changed, and couples think the problem is each other, instead of realizing that major change 
is just hard for all of us. These things come up when your partner gets an amazing job offer in another country, or you're feeling the need to pivot your career and are feeling stuck. Go back to your values and goals. What do you want long-term? How can you make decisions today that relieve some pressure without hindering your bigger vision? The logistics you can figure out, even if it means just outsourcing a few tasks you both hate. And finally, third, make it a habit to treat your partner with kindness. I was so, so glad that Jen added this as her last piece of advice. Balancing parenting, careers, relationships, self-care, and more, it's hard work. Things will fall through. Things won't always pan out exactly how we want them to. Making our baseline constant assumption that our spouse loves us and has our best interest at heart will allow us to give our partners more grace. It will stave off resentment and bickering arguments. It allows us to approach all our conversations with our spouse with love, not preparing for an argument. Remember that most couples do want to support each other. Your spouse does want you to be happy and to succeed, just like you want them to. You can navigate the details together. You've got this. I want to thank Jennifer again for joining me on the show and sharing all she's learned about how to thrive as a dual career couple. I know it's something many mamas struggle with, and we all appreciate a helping hand. If you'd like to see the full show notes with links to Jen's site and book, or to download your free Family Money Values worksheet, visit us at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Jen. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.